Hello, and thank you so much for being with us on this uh, flex day to get our spring semester started. My name is Nathan Lawless Steele, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to today's Flex Day. And we've got uh, a couple of speakers, one, both of whom you should know a good deal about, if not now, then by the end. Uh, I'd like to begin with our uh, land acknowledgement statement. We acknowledge that we are on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramatush Ohlone, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As the indigenous stewards of the land and in accordance with their traditions, the Ramatush Ohlone have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as the caretakers of, of this place, as well as for all people who reside in, the traditional, in their traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramatush community and by affirming their sovereign rights as first people. And with that acknowledged about the land that we stand on, uh, I'd like to invite folks and remind folks that uh, if you are viewing here in MUB 140, then you should have signed in on the sign-in sheet right outside the door. And if you are watching the streaming version, then you can use this QR code right here uh, and use the Google form to sign in to make sure that you get credit for being here today, whether you're physically here or virtually here. I'd like to take just a brief moment to thank the folks that make this day happen. Uh, and uh, William Mosley is usually the person that would be up here talking to you, but he's a little bit sick and has invited me to take over as MC. I'll keep it quick. Tanya Clarkson from English, Bobby Ford McCormick, Tessa Henderson Brown, Alexander Hosmer, Jennifer Kinsla, Pam Mary, uh, Elena Wong and Christina Januaria uh, are all helping to make this day happen. Uh, and of course, it's also gratitude for uh, all of you who are choosing to be here on a day and using this as an opportunity to hopefully move the college better and help to kind of enhance our, our own approaches to uh, being better educators here at City College of San Francisco. Uh, and with that, I would like to welcome the leader of our institution, uh, who I know has some uh, news that he wants to share, and I think some invitation that as we approach this new year with a, with a, with a contract and hopefully feeling a little bit better incrementally about what the future looks like, uh, let's give a warm welcome to our chancellor, Dr. Martin. All right, can we hear me? Okay, it looks like I see some nodding heads. And uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to uh, the Spring 2024 Flex Day. Uh, if I may just have a minute of your grace to pull up a PowerPoint presentation that will guide uh, the discussion here this morning. Uh, I won't take up too much of our time this morning because I do want to uh, allow as much time as possible for our keynote speaker and our special guest this morning. But I did want to take some time uh, to not only welcome everybody back to the Spring 2024 Flex Day, 
uh, but also uh, take a moment to first start off and echo some of the comments that uh, Nathan made in respects to uh, acknowledging our professional development committee and the wonderful work that goes into making this day meaningful. And a special shout out to all of our presenters and facilitators throughout the day. Uh, without their hard work, uh, much of it over uh, winter break, uh, we wouldn't have wonderful sessions lined up for us uh, to bring us into the spring semester. So please take a moment, as always, and uh, thank your presenters throughout the day. What we're going to talk about this morning is we're going to start off with what's new at City College of San Francisco. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, some accreditation updates. We're going to look at the recent state budget. As I'm sure many of you are aware, uh, Governor Newsom released the 24-25 uh, preliminary state budget on Wednesday. Uh, as you can see, if you walk around campus, we have some facility updates that we can touch base on, and then we'll conclude this morning uh, with some enrollment numbers now uh, that the fall is behind us. So what's new at City College of San Francisco? Uh, what we're going to start uh, a slow implementation in partnership with the State Chancellor's Office is the pilot integration of ID proofing. Uh, so as we know, we've had, and we're not uh, alone, most districts throughout the state of California have had concerns and issues uh, during the pandemic with a lot of ghost students uh, registering throughout the California Community College system. Uh, here locally, we did everything that we could to implement new software and detect those ghost students. Uh, but the Chancellor's Office is now stepping in with a statewide implementation of ID proofing. Uh, that will be a component of the CCC Apply Application System uh, to hopefully identify fraudulent applications uh, from the onset before the students or the fake students get to the local level and start registering at the classes uh, at the district. So that is something that we're going to be working as a region on, uh, but also working with the State Chancellor's Office in implementing ID proofing. Uh, we're excited to say that we're fully implementing the new policy for credit for prior learning, so this is a really neat concept. Uh, I do want to mention that we did award our first student for uh, credit for prior learning last fall. Uh, as you uh, may know, credit for prior learning is where we can award college credit uh, with new legislation based on past knowledge and skills gained outside of a traditional higher education environment. A great example uh, of that is that we have people coming to us with a prior career in the military to where they were working on huge machines and develop these skill sets that we can now potentially award credit for uh, when they come to City College. So we're excited to implement that. Uh, fully here this fall semester. Our IT team has done a wonderful job in uh, really working on to improve our MyCCSF application, or our app. Uh, we now have opportunities for students to receive notifications regarding important college deadlines, uh, college waitlist, as well as ad request. Uh, so we're really trying to enhance and push out uh, a higher usage of our application, our MyCCSF app. I do want to take a moment and acknowledge our international student program. Uh, after uh, the pandemic, we've really uh, placed an emphasis on uh, getting that program uh, back up and running. We're excited to announce that we will be welcoming 100 new international students to City College this spring semester. Uh, so that's a huge step in the right direction, and we hope to see that program continue to take off uh, here in the coming semesters. 
Uh, I will also take a moment to touch base on our ethnic studies degree pathway uh, that will be offered this semester in the San Bruno uh, men's facility. Uh, so as I, we touched on last semester, we did receive a uh, significant grant from the state chancellor's office, uh, about $1.5 over five years to really enhance and expand our programs uh, for justice-impacted uh, individuals. Uh, so we're excited to uh, connect with uh, the San Bruno facility and have uh, CCSF dorms within their facility uh, and be working with facility officials to have in-person registration and potentially offer uh, City College classes this coming semester in that facility. Uh, so it's something that I think will take, uh, you know, a lot of work, uh, but ultimately it's going to be a great opportunity uh, to implement a grant uh, to reach a community uh, and really enhance uh, opportunities for individuals who are justice impacted. Uh, continuing on, uh, our counseling departments uh, over the last uh, semester and a half uh, have been working on unification. Uh, so effective 24-25, uh, but really uh, as we start this semester, uh, we'll have a consolidated or a unified counseling department that will be entitled Counseling Services and Programs. Uh, so for the last 20 or so years, we've had new student counseling and continuing student counseling. Uh, we've been working on the unification of those two departments to provide a singular counseling uh, department. I just want to take a moment, and I certainly uh, don't want to list names because I know I would forget many, uh, but that work uh, has taken uh, a lot of time from many dedicated and great individuals. Uh, wonderful department chairs and deans and faculty have really come to the table over the last two semesters to make this unification possible uh, so we can better serve our students uh, in the future. So we'll have uh, much more information to come uh, as we roll out uh, the, uh, the, excuse me, the Counseling Services and Programs Department, uh, but I did just want to point that out as something that's new uh, this spring semester. I did uh, mention earlier that we did receive the Juvenile Justice Program grant uh, from the Chancellor's Office, so that will certainly uh, be an exciting implementation uh, project this semester. Uh, we are also expanding our auto petition uh, process through our center of completion. So we are now uh, including 184 uh, credit certificates and 23 non-credit certificates that get auto awarded uh, when students reach certain uh, credit uh, thresholds, uh, which really helps us with the student-centered funding formula because many students uh, sometimes don't know that they have the credits to be awarded certain degrees and certificates. So this auto award process really uh, brings that to the forefront. I did want to take a moment and just give a big shout out to our Spark Point Center. We all know the wonderful work they are doing. Uh, they're taking another step forward and expanding some of their services this semester. Uh, they are collecting uh, business and professional attire to help our students uh, go to job fairs, uh, to do interviews. Uh, once they get employment, to uh, go to their place of employment. Uh, so a big uh, plug for anybody that may have uh, unused uh, professional uh, wear. Uh, please reach out to the Spark Point Center. Uh, they would love to take it. Uh, our students need uh, access to those types of clothing materials so that they can put their best foot forward when they go to job fairs and job interviews. So please uh, take a moment, uh, look in your closet, and if there's anything that you can spare, uh, please reach out to our Spark Point Center because uh, our students would very much appreciate it. 
I also wanted to touch base down there at the bottom that our student health services uh, is now offering uh, fentanyl test strips here on campus and that they're available uh, in the student health center lobby. So if there's any uh, questions or concerns about how to connect students uh, with those uh, resources, please reach out to our student health services and they'll have all the information uh, that is needed. All right, now we'll jump on to an accreditation update. Uh, so as uh, everybody is aware, uh, the ACCJC uh, had their biannual commission meeting this week. Uh, this last Wednesday, they had the open session. Uh, their open session is for discussing uh, commission-wide policies and processes and really any item that's uh, impacting all affiliated institutions. Uh, that's more of an overarching discussion. And then yesterday, they had their closed session. And closed session is for uh, their discussion on institutions that are at some point in the accreditation cycle. Uh, so City College, as you know, is at the end of our seven-year evaluation cycle. Uh, we were uh, one of several districts that were discussed yesterday uh, in the Commission's closed session. Uh, so that is something that we are waiting uh, for our next steps on, and that will come uh, within 30 days. Uh, so every institution that is awaiting action, and there's a list of several, uh, now has a 30-day window in which they will be told uh, by the ACCJC uh, what the next steps are. So we are now in that 30-day window, and that notification could come at any point uh, during that time. And then as, uh, no, as mentioned there at the bottom, once we are notified by the ACCJC, uh, the institutions will then be given a timeline on how to publicize that information. Uh, one of the core policy components of accreditation processes is that all the information uh, decisions are made public uh, in a certain way within a certain timeline. So once we receive uh, the letter uh, from the commission, that will outline the steps on how we uh, follow the process to publicize that information and share it with our college community. Uh, so that is our accreditation update uh, for today. Now we'll touch base on the 24-25 state budget. Uh, so just a few uh, budget points. Uh, the budget, as you know, was released on Wednesday, and we have uh, several weeks to dive into the information. But a few uh, key highlights uh, to start off with is uh, there was a cost of living uh, of a little less than 1%, uh, so 7.76%. Uh, and as the legislation stands today, because City College uh, will be uh, continuing on and hold harmless uh, for a certain amount of time, uh, this could potentially be our last COLA uh, for the next few fiscal years. Uh, down there below uh, the first bullet, uh, I put that the state prior to the budget release was estimating approximately a 4% COLA for California community colleges. So we've heard in the news uh, that there's a statewide budget deficit. And then I think you can see that in certain areas throughout the higher education budget. Uh, but I wanted to pinpoint uh, one of the, I think, most glaring uh, areas of the budget to where you see the state budget situation impacting California Community College funding. Uh, within about a two-month window, we went from a 4% COLA projection uh, down to less than a 1% COLA projection. And I think that is uh, ultimately the impact of what the state is seeing in respect to their revenue streams. 
Uh, ultimately, this is going to now be negotiated over the next several months. Uh, the next big timeline in the budget development process is the May revise uh, in or around May 15th. The May revise is really the critical uh, budget document because that not only has updated revenues uh, for the first quarter of 2024, uh, but it is also the byproduct of three months of legislative negotiations and lobbying and discussions at Sacramento. Uh, so we're really circling uh, the May revise as our next big budget discussion, and we'll certainly have more information for the college as we get closer to that date. Uh, there is room for enrollment growth uh, system-wide. That's always welcomed. Uh, that's not necessarily applicable, though, to City College because we do have special legislation that allows us to grow as much as we can and be funded for all of it. Uh, that's really uh, a neat piece of legislation that goes through 2526, uh, which allows us to get funding and guaranteed funding for every growth FTS that we have uh, up until that time. I will share that the budget does suspend uh, the state funding for the student housing program. Uh, that was a really neat concept that Governor Newsom rolled out on uh, the 22 budget. Uh, ultimately, the funding uh, is no longer there from the state level, but there is a commitment to help districts fund it locally uh, through revenue lease bonds. Uh, but unfortunately, the state match or the state component was suspended in the current budget. Uh, the state is withdrawing from the Governor uh, Schwarzenegger Prop 2 or Prop 98 rainy day fund. I can't remember which prop it was, uh, but that was a special reserve created at the state level uh, to buffer any decreases in educational funding. Uh, so we are uh, withdrawing uh, from that account uh, here at the state level in the 24-25 budget. Uh, uh, lastly, down there at the bottom, uh, there is a commitment uh, to fund additional programs and pathways. It was specifically called out in the budget uh, for programs to enhance uh, pathways from RN to BSN in our nursing programs. So that's something uh, that the statewide uh, the nursing uh, departments will start a discussion on and we'll certainly have more information on here locally. All right, now we'll move on to City College uh, facilities and uh, really uh, excited to see uh, the construction uh, ongoing. Every time I walk by that steam building, it looks like it progresses uh, months at a time. Uh, but our steam building uh, is literally uh, less than a year away from full completion. Uh, we do hope to have an initial move in uh, towards the late part of the fall and really uh, over the 24-25 winter break uh, to where we can start offering uh, select classes in the spring of 2025. Uh, ultimately, we want to use the summer of 2025 to really do the full capacity uh, move in uh, to really have the building fully open and operational uh, by the fall of 2025, if not uh, some classes in the summer of 2025. But that project is on budget, uh, and it's under, uh, on, pro on budget and uh, on timeline. Uh, so we're excited to start moving in here in the coming months. Uh, right behind us, our Student Success Center. 
the I-beams are up uh, and that building is continuing to move forward. We still have the summer of 2025 as our initial move-in date. And then in the fall of 2025, we'll have all of our services available uh, in that building. Uh, we are working currently with stakeholder groups uh, on a project that is, is very exciting uh, in many respects, is to uh, start finalizing uh, the facility furniture, uh, the fixtures, and really getting uh, the meat uh, of the interior of the building uh, ironed out uh, so we can get those through purchasing and start ordering uh, all of the equipment that will be uh, within the Student Success Building. And then lastly, uh, right behind us, uh, the Performing Arts and Education Center. Uh, once again, we have it fully funded at 180 million, about 183 million when it's all said and done. Uh, we did officially go uh, to the DSA on December 29th, so we spent most of that day uh, in the Division of State Architects office uh, getting all of the plans uh, submitted uh, and they have uh, acknowledged receipt and now we essentially have started a uh, waiting game uh, for lack of a better term. Uh, typically it's between 10 to 12 months for DSA to go through their entire process. Uh, it will be an interactive process with our facilities departments when they have questions, they being DSA have questions regarding architectural designs, calculations, configurations, they will reach out to City College and we will respond. It's called the back check process. So that process really will take up the next 10 to 12 months. And then hopefully uh, by December, uh, we fully expect to have our plans back with a DSA certified stamp, which gives us the clearance uh, and taxis us to the runway to take off for construction. Uh, so at this point in time, uh, we fully expect to have construction fences uh, lined up right behind us uh, by the spring 2025 flex, and we'll be breaking ground shortly thereafter. Uh, we are looking at a two-year construction phase, so possible classes uh, in the spring of 2027. Uh, but this last December, when we got it uh, to DSA, that is a very major milestone uh, in the project project's lifespan, so we're excited to get that underway. All right, now we'll conclude uh, with some enrollment numbers. Uh, real quickly, and I, I hope uh, the chart is easy to follow, uh, but up at the top in the yellow uh, beam, we have our credit headcount and credit FTES. Down below, we have our green uh, beam, which is non-credit headcount and non-credit FTES. And then down there at the bottom, we have the total of the two. So we have total headcount and total FTS. Uh, moving over to the right, we have our fall of 2022 numbers. Uh, so our credit headcount last fall of 2022 was 17,167. Uh, credit FTS was 4,491. You move one column over to the fall of 2023. Uh, we had concluded this semester with 18,017 students uh, and 4,752 in credit FTS. And then the final column uh, is the net increase and decrease in comparison of the fall of 2023 uh, to the fall of 2022. Uh, so as you can see, uh, we did uh, grow City College by 850 unduplicated credit students and 261 credit FTES. Down there, uh, right below, uh, for non-credit and skipping over to the far right column, uh, as you can see in comparison from the fall of 2023 uh, to the fall of 2022, uh, we increased or grew 
uh, non-credit unduplicated headcount by 1,088 individual students, uh, and it increased our non-credit FTS of 190. So fast forwarding down uh, there to the bottom, uh, the right hand corner with the totals, uh, so City College is growing. Uh, our enrollment numbers and the numbers that we're reporting to the State Chancellor's Office uh, definitively show uh, that City College is in a growth mode right now. Uh, in comparison from the fall of 23 to the fall of 22 in total, uh, City College has grown uh, 1,938 unduplicated uh, individual headcounts for a total of 451 FTES. Uh, so that is the testimony uh, to the wonderful work of everybody in this room, everybody uh, watching online. Uh, this college community has done, so, has done such a wonderful job in coming together uh, to really focus on growing City College and the numbers are starting to show uh, the work uh, that is happening in our classrooms, uh, in our counseling offices, uh, in our college community. So thank you very much and it's very exciting to show uh, and to be able to share uh, these growth numbers. And we have preliminary spring numbers as well. Uh, we will get those numbers out uh, once we get a little bit closer to census date. Uh, but right now we are continuing to trend in the same direction. Spring is approximately 300 credit FTES up right now. Uh, so there is a very good potential uh, that we could end the 23-24 academic year with about a thousand FTS growth uh, through credit to non-credit, which is a huge step forward for any district, uh, not alone, let alone City College of San Francisco. So we're very proud of that and really, uh, once again, I don't mean to belabor this, but it's important and it should be. Uh, it really is the work of all of our faculty, our chairs, our staff, our administrators, our trustees, our community members, our student ambassadors. Uh, wonderful work uh, and I am very uh, happy to be able to report this information. Can you update us on adding uh, certainly, Harry, and that's something that we will get to through our Enrollment Management Committee and other opportunities for college-wide participation, but we are certainly uh, looking at developing the 24-25 academic schedule uh, through a transparent process with community feedback and input. But thank you, Harry, for your question. All right, now it's time uh, to welcome uh, Dr. Robin Nizarellis, and I will uh, defer back to Nathan uh, to do the introduction, but real quickly as I conclude, I uh, just want to reiterate uh, my gratitude uh, for your work. I hope you have a wonderful flex day, and please uh, take a moment uh, to thank your speakers throughout the day as a lot of work went into making this day meaningful. Have a great spring semester, everybody, and I'll see you on campus. Thank you. Uh, gratitude to the Chancellor for sharing all of that good information with us and providing that state of the college address and uh, and celebrating the the work that we are doing and the work uh, ahead of us and that is a good moment to transition uh, it is it is my pleasure to to welcome our keynote speaker for today dr. Robin Iserless who is the uh, author of The Costs of Completion, which is one of our books that we have opted to read as a campus community this year. 
Uh, Robin is a third generation uh, CUNY student uh, and, uh, and currently works as a professor in that system. Uh, and my sense is that she has a lifelong dedication to being a community college uh, instructor uh, and, and always seeking out ways to improve herself and to improve the systems in which we work. Um, She's got 20 years of teaching and researching in the community college context. Uh, she spent time analyzing enrollment patterns. She's interviewed students. Uh, I know that sometimes we wonder what happens to our students that have withdrawn from our classes. Uh, and Robin has worked tirelessly to try to answer those questions, uh, both for herself. And I think that uh, some of those answers are also things that we will benefit from, from hearing. Uh, she argues for centering student uh, sensibilities or a student sensibility uh, and cultivating a sense of belonging for students, uh, helping them to think about uh, having an identity as a college student or as a city college of San Francisco uh, student. And these are things that we have been talking about, but how we actually take those words and put them to action, I think, is where I'd love for our campus community to have more dialogue. Uh, the last thing I'll say is that uh, uh, Robin makes a powerful argument, I think, that we should hear and invites us to participate in that dialogue. I, I simultaneously think that Robin does a lot of uh, reflection about her own journey and, and has a lot of humility about that. And to me, that reflection and humility are key components to what we want to hold on to on a day of professional development where we're asked to envision how we individually could be better and how we might work together to make our institution better. Uh, and so with that, let me not take any more time and please help me give a warm welcome to our keynote speaker today, Dr. Robin Iserlis. Good morning, everyone. Can you hear me okay? Uh, it is a pleasure to be here. Uh, this is my first trip to CCSF. Um, not my first trip to San Francisco, but it's been 10 years, uh, and it's really nice to be back. Um, first, I, I do want to thank um, uh, Nathan and William and Elena and everyone I worked with, uh, the whole committee, for not only adopting my book for this spring, but for inviting me to be here to talk about some of what uh, I found, some of what I've been thinking about uh, over my course of time at a community college. Um, I started teaching at a community college when I was in my second year of grad, grad school, getting my PhD in sociology. Um, I had never taught before, uh, call it baptism by fire. I had no pedagogical development. <laughs> I sat in on a, a colleague's class uh, for um, a summer before I started teaching, and there I was uh, teaching a, a, an evening class of uh, introdu introduction to sociology, and um, I fell in love with teaching at the community college. I fell in love with teaching community college students. Um, I did a lot of thinking um, about my own teaching over the years, uh, and I was involved in some research and that's what culminated in this book. So uh, for today, I want to give you a sense of the inspiration behind the book, um, some of the critiques that I'm putting forward, uh, which I think is important um, for us to be thinking about um, as we think about improving ourselves as people who meet with uh, students, whether in our classrooms or in our offices, um, and uh, really 
I think, think through some of the hard questions that we don't often get an opportunity to think about. So um, that's what I'd like to do. So, um, so what do I mean by the cost of completion? And let me just say at the outset, I'm not saying we don't care or we shouldn't care about getting students to complete college <laughs> at all. Um, but um, I was inspired to write this book because I was becoming more and more frustrated with the ways in which student success was being narrowly defined. Um, and the harm that I saw that this was doing to my students who were trying to juggle very busy lives um, outside the classroom uh, and trying to keep up with being pushed to take more and more credits because of a reading of some of the research that suggested that if they were not enrolled full time, they were more likely not to finish at all. Uh, and I just thought that so, many of, so much of this push was really misguided for the students that I knew in my class. And I suspected that a lot of the people that were pushing this more and more and more really didn't have a good idea about who our students are. Uh, and we do. We work with these students. We know these students. They come to our office hours. I will say, I call them student hours now, which I'll talk about in a, in a little bit. So I, when I say student hours, I mean office hours. Um, I actually think students, it resonates better with students to call them student hours. They know it's for them. So I've adopted that language. Um, but we know these students as much as possible, and certainly more than what a lot of people who were making these decisions to suggest that we push students to take more and more credits and get them to full time and get them to you know, do college year round, uh, were not really um, attuned to. And so um, I wanted to write a book that really um, describes some of what I've learned over now close to 30 years, if you include my, my time as a part-time instructor while in graduate school, uh, and uh, uh, full-time. I was also inspired because I was constantly sitting in meetings um, and just hearing um, a kind of corporatist language that just didn't sit well, well for me. Um, we were starting to think of ourselves as content providers. Um, and I don't know if this language is here, out here on the West Coast. It certainly is on the East Coast. Following best practices, reporting to administrators concerned with enrollment, man enrollment management and ROIs, um, and having our classrooms also kind of infected with this language as students themselves were internalizing this message that they were consumers of their education. Um, and from that outset, I thought, this is the wrong path. This is not why so many of us got into teaching higher ed. Um, they are more than return on investments. And I know we have to be conscious of budgets, but in our classrooms, they are not investments in that sense. They're not um, widgets. They are human people who want more for their lives and for their families, and we want to honor that. Um, and so that was another uh, kind of impetus for the book. Um, Wendy Brown, the political theorist, um, has coined this process, this adoption of this corporatist language, this kind of neoliberal impulse, as the neoliberal ascendancy. And what I do in the book is I, I discuss this and its many manifestations as it's hit the community college context. Um, so in each chapter of the book, I demonstrate a different yet interrelated piece of the college completion project as an artifact of this um, uh, neoliberal thinking. Um, it's made for many of us, it, it made it, it's made it very difficult for so many of us to even envision other alternative possibilities um, when the language becomes so um, 
framed around a certain way of thinking about students, student success. Um, and, you know, there are things to be concerned about, right? We do have students who withdraw and we don't know where they go. And we have students who stop out and come back and, um, you know, pivot between full-time and part-time. Um, so we want to be concerned by, by these trends and understand them uh, in a deeper way. Um, but the ways in which community colleges were being redesigned, in my estimation, was merely about getting them through. And I think that's another way in which students have internalized this. I just want to get through. Um, and what does that do to the quality of what we're hoping to offer them in our classrooms of, uh, you know, thinking about them as intellectually capable of doing college work and of growing and flourishing just like we would at any other college? And why is that um, a different name in the community college. So these were some of the other questions that I was, um, I was uh, thinking about. So I also wanted to shed some light on some of the contradictions that have emerged, um, but have been kind of shoved to the margins. Uh, so, you know, I think the most important of these won't be a surprise to you that as our higher education um, has democratized and as we've invited more and more people in who we used to call non-traditional, um, we've had severe erosion of state and city and you know, budgets um, and allocations towards higher ed. Those two things have happened at the same time throughout the country, not just here in California, uh, certainly in New York that is the case as well. Um, and that, as we know, has unleashed a whole host of consequences, um, larger class sizes, an over-reliance on contingent faculty and staff, um, fewer learning resources, labs, libraries, counseling services. It was so delightful to hear some of the expansion that's happening at CCSF. That's very exciting. Um, I've spoken to many community colleges who are not in that place and who are su you know, suffering from a diminishment of those uh, kinds of resources. Um, other contradictions, right? Setting a graduation rate of two or three years, I think many of us in this room know that that's implausible. It's impossible. And it's not because of a desire. It's, this is not about grit. And I do critique the whole grit narrative in chapter six. If you're interested, I'm not going to speak too much about that today unless you want. Um, but, you know, our students are incredibly full of grit and determination. Every time they walk outside of where they live to come to campus, they show grit and determination. It's not that, though. It's all of these other outside structural forces that make college going so difficult for them. And pushing them to do more and more doesn't seem a way to keep them or to encourage them to come back. Um, you know, I, I do a whole analysis of the way that the data is constructed in chapter two, and I don't want to bore everyone. I don't know how data friendly you are. Um, but just I'll give a very brief uh, uh, sort of idea of what I say in, in chapter two. You know, IPEDS, the, um, I always forget what it stands for, the Integrated Post-Secondary Education Data System. That's often the data that's used to show, to demonstrate, right, college completion rates. It's very restrictive, and we often don't know this, right? So it considers only first-time, full-time students who graduate with an associate's degree in three years. Okay, so let that sink in. So for the 2010 cohort, it shows a 25% completion rate. 
And most of us were like, oh, of course it does. <laughs> yes, it does. Um, there's a newer a metric being used, uh, being adopted, called the Voluntary uh, Framework of Accountability, the VFA. I don't know, again, the data heads in the room, if you're familiar with this. This is a little bit more uh, liberal. Uh, includes full part-time, considers credentials, and allows a six-year time frame, better. And that shows a 59% uh, graduation rate, better. Still not good, still something that we should be thinking about, but there's a big difference here. Um, I think it's a incumbent upon us as faculty, as staff, to always question the data. And maybe that's just my training as a sociologist, right? How are we, what numbers are we looking at and how uh, are they generated? When we're talking about what our students uh, and, and what we should be doing. Um, now, of course, another contradiction, right, is for higher institutions, um, higher ed institutions not marred by low retention and completion rates, right, the largely private, mostly inaccessible colleges that we hear a lot about in the news. Um, college in those contexts is about a self-explorative experience, right, full of opportunities to grow intellectually, socially, um, but for the rest, including the academically and economically precarious students attending public colleges and specifically community colleges, their experiences is reduced to getting through on hyperspeed. Is this in the way? I realize that. Thank you so much. Apologies. Um, so I don't want my students to be thinking about getting through on hyperspeed and making their lives much more fraught uh, emotionally, mentally, uh, physically, um, and intellectually. Um, I think that most of us in the community college classroom and offices want more for our students. Uh, and so again, that was the impetus behind the book. Um, so in the first part of the book, I situate the, so it's on, how many have read it yet or you're reading it for the spring, correct? Okay. Great, I didn't want to repeat too much, but uh, I'll give a kind of an outline. Um, so I situate the community college and its purpose and its historical context, right? This is not the first time we're thinking about the purpose of a community college, its social justice mission, et cetera. Um, but then I kind of turn my attention to what has become the dominant theory driving so much of the reform, which um, is called academic momentum, right? And it, you know, you can think of like the physics principle of momentum, the, mo the earlier, and the more a student um, is integrated academically in their college, the more likely they are to persist and graduate on time, right? It makes sense, it's intuitive, right? Um, of course, the original study done in the 80s was only done at bachelor granting institutions. Um, it's unclear how the community college context got fixated on this. I think it was because of the pressures with state budget declines and completion rates and retention rates that were thought of as a concern. Um, but if we think about this physics principle and we think about our students, it really doesn't make sense for our students, right? We can build momentum, we can build support, but that doesn't necessarily need to or have to translate into just pushing them through more and more classes, right? Um, and very, very often, I don't know how it's done here at City uh, College, and I'm looking forward to hearing more, um, at, at CUNY, where I teach, that I'm at Borough of Manhattan Community College, one of seven community colleges of the CUNY system. Um, a lot of this is being pushed through online learning. 
So we have students trying to juggle um, full-time jobs or part-time jobs that are close enough to full, but you know, under the under the the skirts, they don't get the benefits. Um, so 30 hours a week, even 25 hours a week, juggling five classes, doing three in person, and then being pushed to take two online, and it's it's a recipe for failure. And unfortunately, students internalize this as their own failure. We know that it's beyond them uh, and outside of them. And our voice, I think, is a really important voice here to share. Um, now, for some students, these initiatives may, may be very helpful, right? It's a, you know, some students may be at 12 credits and pushed along for another three. They may do quite well. Um, and so we may not want to throw this out completely, but I think we want to be more thoughtful about how we are and why we are pushing students to do more and who we're pushing to do more. We do have students who are able to commit to being a full-time student who have very few obligations, family and work, who might do very well to be supported and prodded to be taking an additional class. But for the majority of our students, I think that's not the case. And um, I think that we, um, we need some attention there. Um, we also want to be careful about how we're celebrating this, right? Um, so I, I will never forget, um, right before I went on sabbatical to write this book, um, my, own, my then uh, provost of my institution put some wonderful charts on the board uh, celebrating uh, five years of improved uh, completion rates of our, of our students. And it was pretty significant. Um, and then, of course, the next slide was uh, an increase in students on academic probation. Um, and so after the meeting, because I, you know, I wanted to be respectful, I said, so um, I'm curious what correlation you see between these two things. And she looked at me with like the, the three-eyed fish from The Simpsons. Like, like she couldn't imagine that there would be a connection between these two things. And it was almost at that point where I'm like, I think I need to write a book. <laughs> because there is some disconnect here, right? Yes, we should be celebrating an improvement of completion. But if we are doing so, when we are also experiencing a pretty significant rise in the number of students who are on probation, I don't know if you have academic probation um, here. Yes, OK, which I also think we may want to look into for a community <coughs> college that's open admission, whether a probation is the right course, uh, again, a national discussion. Um, but uh, to not have a sense that those two can be related, that we might be serving some students but might be doing much more harm to lots of other students is, is I think, a reason for, for uh, some examination. Um, so in uh, the third chapter, I talk a bit about, I had the opportunity, actually, I was invited to be part of a, a Gates-funded uh, project looking at academic momentum in the, uh, among first-year students at the CUNY Community Colleges. And this started back in 2011. I was on the project for 2011 to 2013. My school was gracious enough to allow me to leave so that I was uh, uh, part of this research uh, team and it was really exciting. Um, it's not often something a community college faculty gets to do. I will say that I was chosen because I had the community college street cred, if you will, because the rest of the research team did not, which is another issue I bring up in the book, that the folks who are often studying and researching and examining the community college context 
don't teach or work at a community college, and I do think that that allows for some of this misread and, and uh, or narrowness of how and what we're, we're learning. Um, it was a great opportunity. Um, it was a wonderful way to see how randomized control trial experiments are really, really problematic. Um, at all counts, from recruitment to uh, attrition in the, in the, you know, and the fact that they're the gold standard of educational research right now, I think, is also kind of problematic. Um, there's this underbelly of lots of problems, and again, this was just one pretty big research, but it was a lot. But I had the opportunity to interview students um, who are part of that program, and so a lot of that data, where I talk about the student sensibility in chapters five and six. Um, are, are used uh, in, in that. Um, but, you know, one of the, the issues is, you know, as states have moved away from their funding commitments, um, we've had this kind of new um, class of, some folks are calling them edu-philanthropists, folks like the Melinda and Bill, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Lumina Foundation, that have kind of rushed in. Um, and, you know, I will say the Gates folks were lovely. They were not on our backs about what we were doing. They were happy enough to get our yearly reports. But that's, I don't think, where the issue is. The issue is that they have a particular set of agenda items that become wrapped into the research that they fund. Um, and it's this very kind of echo chambery sort of relationship. So, you know, we have guided pathways. Have you adopted guided pathways here? Okay, so guided pathways brought to you by the Gates Foundation um, through the partially fun Gates, Gates funded CCRC, the Community College Research Center, because they get their money to study guided pathways and implement it from the Gates Foundation. And then you have the evaluative groups like MDRC who are also partially funded by the Gates Foundation. So it's this very kind of tricky, a little bit scary echo chamber of all these folks, again, often divorced from the community college context, who are putting this research out that we are then supposed to be, you know, scurrying about to implement to try to help our students succeed. Now, again, some of it we may, th there may be some valid things that we want to consider, but we also know a lot of insights from just working with students in our offices and our classrooms um, that sometimes defy what this research shows that should be part of the discussion. And that's one of the hopes that I have for this book. Um, so what do I mean by student sensibility and student ready? Just looking at the time. Um, so in the second part of the book, I wanted to, I, I, I introduced this concept that I, I'm calling the student sensibility, and I, I, I'm, I'm going to share with you where it came from. Um, but from the outset, I, I wanted to move away from uh, the deficit lens through which we often see community college students, um, their weaknesses, their problems, their um, not being student ready. Um, and this is a, 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 too much of a thread that runs through how we think about community college students, certainly in the research world. Um, and I, I did not want to contribute to that because I. I don't think that at all. <laughs> I think quite the opposite. Um, but we are often, you know, we often meet with students who are, don't have a, a necessarily a good handle on what it means to navigate through college. Um, and so I wanted to develop a concept that honors that and, and really confronts that, but without interpreting that as a deficit 
as something bad, as something wrong with them. So I, I coined this term, the student sensibility, um, and I'm really happy to hear from people how it works for you, if it does and if it doesn't. <laughs> um, but it has its roots in Pierre Bourdieu's notion of habitus, about sort of a sense of knowing, uh, uh, you know, a, a knowledge of how to navigate through a, a part of a social world. But it's more reflexive than that. A, a lot of the things that I find with my students is that they don't think about themselves as college students. That's not something that's been part of their family socialization, especially for first-generation college students, that they don't have um, family members who just kind of talk about college life in a way that I think students who are continuing generation students do, um, especially who are more economically uh, and academically uh, more um, uh, comfortable. Um, so Pierre Bourdieu's uh, notion of uh, habitus was important. Um, I also draw on two sociologists, Arlie Hochschild, who studied the second shift uh, uh, work that women do in the home. So they work, then they come home, and then there's all this other labor that has to get done. She wrote this in the 80s. Unfortunately, there has been a little movement in equalizing this. Um, but one of the things that she wrote about was this attunement, this thinking about how a house needs to be managed, that labor. How, it, how It's not just going to the grocery and getting the, 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 what you need. It's thinking about everybody's needs and how that happens. And I, I just thought that this idea of attunement was really helpful to think about how students are more or less attuned to what it means to go to college. And in our interviews, we heard a lot of students who, their first time on campus, it was, it was so big, they would say, right? And these are New York City high school students very often who ended up at any one of our community colleges, and it was so big. And there was just this, you know, not knowing where, what a bursar office does and what a financial aid office does. And of, of course they don't. They're new in college. But that's sort of what I mean by attunement, um, how that uh, works. Um, and then the other sociologist that was influential um, was um, Annette Leroux, who studied different child-rearing practices of different um, class-based family uh, systems. Um, and one of her um, findings was that student, the, the children that she interviewed with their families who were from more working class families um, didn't have a sense that they were entitled to advocate for themselves, right? That they're reared by parents mostly who don't have, you know, dominant positions in their own work history, that they, they report to other people. And this translates into a, a kind of, you just take an, an institution at its word, and you don't have a sense that you could and should advocate for yourself. So I was finding that for a lot of the students that I, I, I was teaching and advising, they were often, especially early on, lacking some attunement in how a college works or didn't quite have that developed yet. Um, and an advocacy for themselves, that they didn't know that they should push or they should question uh, a, a response from a financial aid officer, right? Or when they were told they had to take a remedial class, but they took an AP English class, and they didn't know that they could advocate for themselves. And I think that's part of the, what I was trying to also articulate with the student sensibility. Um, and. But I also wanted to flesh it out. I didn't want it only to come from a kind of world of sociology. So there were a lot of other influential thinkers. Some of them I, I hope you've come across. Um, but the, the ideas of uh, belonging, um, identity formation, um, what 
fears and insecurities students bring with them into especially a community college classroom because they bring a lot. Uh, Rebecca Cox's work back from 2009 called The College Fear Factor was really uh, influential for me about thinking about all of those insecurities, academic and otherwise, that students bring with them. Um, they are so in fear of failure that they often sabotage their own uh, success by not handing things in because they are so fearful of what it means to get back that work being critiqued, right? So there's all kinds of other mechanisms involved in developing this attunement. So folks like Estella Ben-Simon, Rebecca Cox, Regina Delamin, Bell Hooks, Bettina Love, Laura Rendon, Victor Rios, Mike Rose, Terrell Strayhorn, and uh, Angela Valenzuela were also influences in, in, in terms of how I wanted to think about this idea of a student sensibility. Um, and then I read, uh, I don't know how many of you are familiar with Tony Jack's The Privileged Poor, um, How Elite Colleges Are Failing Disadvantaged Students. Anybody? 2019. Uh, another sociologist, uh, up, and, up and coming, uh, really brilliant sociologist. Um, but he took a, a look at um, two different kinds of groups of low-income students at a private institution. Um, everyone is guessing what it is. I don't know what it is, and I don't actually care because it doesn't matter to me where it was. Um, and so part, one group of students were those students who came from um, low-income communities but plucked out of those neighborhoods and sent to um, private high schools very often, ABCs, uh, uh, I don't know if this is out here on the West Coast, but it is uh, on the East Coast, a better chance. So there's these kind of scholarship programs. Um, and then the other group were from coming from you know, low-resource neighborhoods right into a place like Harvard. I don't know what school it is again, um, Cornell, Harvard, whatever. Um, and Jack's point was despite how much rhetoric there is around equity and diversity in these institutions that the schools themselves are, are set up in such a way that you know, creates the conditions where students who are low income, often first generation, are structurally excluded, right? So closing the dining halls during spring break is a really great example. Like the students who can't afford to go home don't have a meal plan, right? That's an example. And so I was tried to use his idea of this kind of institution that wants students to succeed but sets barriers in the way, creates the conditions that structurally exclude them. I, want, want, I tried to make that meaningful in the community college context. So where it's not dining halls that close, it's pushing students who work 40 hours a week and take their grandma to dialysis on a weekly basis to take 15 credits, even if some of them are online, and think that that's a way to succeed. Uh, so a similar kind of structural exclusion there. Um, so in chapters five and six, I mentioned I, I use a lot of the uh, data that I learned from my interviews, uh, talking a lot about students and sort of the preconditions about going into college that I think are fruitful, fruitful for us to think about, right? So again, for students who don't have parents who either attended or completed college, there's often something in about a family socialization around college going that, that isn't there. And what could our institutions do to perhaps meet those needs? So whether it's, you know, thinking about creating relationships with other pub, with public high schools in the area uh, to help students think about themselves as college. It's not just what CCS have, has to offer, 
right? We know it has a lot to offer. But helping students think about themselves in the college setting, which is what dual enrollment I think was designed to do before it's now become the answer to our enrollment issues. <laughs> um, but to offer high school students an opportunity not just to take a class, but to think about what it means to be in college. And I think that thinking about that identity formation, right? I was always struck at BMCC where I teach when I hear from my students and say, well, you know, I work at, um, you know, Best Buy um, and I take classes at BMCC. Even though they're at BMCC as a full time student, they work at Best Buy, maybe part-time, maybe a little bit more, maybe that in-between. But I take classes at, not I go to BMCC or I'm a BMCC student. And I think that that difference is instructive for us. I think it reveals something about how students think about themselves as college students. Uh, and that is what I wanted to speak to as well. Um, I think we want to, in, in chapter six, I, so I go from the preconditions to the current conditions of students who are trying to navigate all this. We do have a lot more research now on the amount of time that students work as they go to college. I'm assuming that most of your students work and go to college. Yes, that I think that's a safe assumption for most of us who work at a community college. Um, Sarah Goldrick-Rob has done a lot about this kind of research and others as well. I think we, we know the, Quantity. We know our students work a lot. I don't think we though, have enough of a sense of how they manage this work with the qualitative aspects of working so much and going to school and having family obligations. Um, you know, so we have students who will craft a schedule where um, they're home in time to take their younger brother's school, they come to class, they take three classes, they go back, they do an internship, somehow they fit in work time, they come back to pick up their net, and it's like, it's like um, a, a, a puzzle, right? Um, but it, it may not be a, a great way to go about taking a college class. And of course, so many of the students that I teach are also dependent upon those jobs, the um, week to week, when they know their schedule week to week, of the just-in-time hour jobs, which I think there's now some states that are trying to legislate, make that unlawful. Um, I don't know where we are on that. But you know, it's it, very often in the service sector where they work as a barista. And from week to week, they don't know what their schedule is. And I don't know about you, but whoops. That was my 30 minute. Um, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't have been able to do college like that, right? It does not account for when our assignments are due and you know the, the, the ebb and flow of a semester. Um, and so I don't think we have enough of a handle on that and knowing these kind of more qualitative experiences of being a student. Um, and working and family obligations and juggling all those. And I think when I say making college student ready, that's sort of what I mean. I think for so long and partially related to that deficit lens, we were all about making co students college ready, right? Let's make them ready for college. And I don't want to be dismissive. I'm sorry, I, that was a little dismissive. But I do think that a better um, and more generative discussion would be around how do we make our colleges more student ready? How do we meet our students where they are at? How do we support the part-time student? Because pushing them to be full-time student, clearly there's lots of newer evidence, actually. Our governor, Hochul, has now, uh, just February, uh, as of fall of 2022, finally allowed for our state tuition program, our TAP, 
uh, to finally be allowed to be, uh, for part-time students. So before that, <laughs> we had a lot of students who were just trying to eke out at least 12 credits who really knew they couldn't do this only so that they would be eligible for state-funded uh, financial aid. So I'm not talking about federal funded. I'm talking about the state funded. I don't know how it works here in California. I'm, I'm you know, be interested to learn more. Um, but that's sort of what I mean, right, is that if, if we are going to just maybe start with the assumption that some of our students are just intractably part-time, like that is the way they have to go to college, how do we make the institution more responsive to that? Do we set up a part-time academy for part-time students? Do we, uh, you know, what kinds of things coming from what we know about our students and the struggles that they have academically, economically, of course, with other insecurities around food and housing, which we're learning more and more and more about, how do we confront that and try to work towards creating an institution that is ready for them? Uh, and I think that that's a really uh, important guide for us. Um, so I, w I wasn't going to read from my book, but I will um, just do one, one quote. Um, moving forward, if we are committed to a more comprehensive notion of student success, we must think much more about whether and to what extent we want to disrupt or displace the habitus and life worlds of the students we are ho hoping to help succeed. When our students maintain deep connections and obligations to their families, to their basic livelihoods, to their multiple roles and identities. It is imperative that we consider how the policies and reform initiatives build upon or break down these connections, and whether the institutions they attend considers and appreciates these conflicts, especially if these connections seem to contradict what we assume to be necessary to succeed academically. The tendency to reduce the definition of success to degree attainment is woefully inadequate. At a basic level, what is it that we want for these students? And so, I, I will. Are we able to have questions, or is that? Yeah, great. So I want to. I want to um, finish up here. I have some. I offer some ways out in the last um, chapter. Um, sociologists are really good at, uh, I think, understanding and explaining a problem, not always so good and how do we, how do we get to the next step. So I tried my best, um, but I'll offer a, a brief uh, kind of set of things that I also hope could encourage some discussion. Um, I do think that we should start to think about um, fostering um, the importance of establishing meaningful connections. I know, I, I don't know about you, but a lot of my students, a lot of them, um, especially if they're first or second generation immigrant uh, students, you know, I'm not here to make friends. You know, they think of school as something they have to do, they have to work, lacking in the joy and the experience of what moves us. I mean, so many of us at some point in our lives, I think, had truly, you know, life transforming experiences joyful experiences, laughter. Um, how do we establish that in our classrooms, in our offices, bringing joy back to the learning process, but also meaningful connections that can't be done through technology? Um, you know, the students, they don't buy the canned messages from those software, you know, of the early alerts. Um, I think their eyes glaze over them. Um, and it may be more efficient, but in practice, they, they you know, I think, we know this, when they feel valued, respected, and inspired and challenged, they thrive. And a canned message from Connect to Success, which is the program we use, is it, doesn't do that. 
Um, it doesn't do that enough. Um, I would love to see, and I don't know how to go about this, but I think we should start talking about expanding our federal work-study program to the community college. A lot of the elite schools have work-study, and they may need them, and that's great, um, but it, it's woefully inadequate at the public community college. And what a great way to keep students on campus, but to give them paid work whether it's through the federal work-study program, through paid internships, to diminish the time that they're commuting and leaving and coming back. Um, much more investment in emotional and mental health services um, and services that are 24-hour, 7-hour. If we're going to have a campus that offers classes on the weekends and at night, then services should be there for those students. Uh, and it may be here at, at CCSF. At, in New York, it's not uh, enough. Um, and... Um, I would love to see some institutional mechanisms designed to specifically work on the students we lose during the semester, right? Those students who disappear on us, who stop out, how do we connect with them? How do we, can we, can we hire, can we think about ways creatively to reach out to those students, not by canned messages on email and they don't read email, that we have to figure out another way? <laughs> the early, uh, the app uh, alert I think is one way and maybe texting or something, but they don't, this generation, the younger generation, they don't do email very well um, or very much. Uh, how, do we, how do we get them, how do we tell them that we care, the care about the fact that they're not here? We miss them in class. What's the plan? You know, things are tough now. Do you th what about a summertime return? I, I think we would actually support and show our students that we are meeting them by having these kind of institutional mechanisms. Um, I don't know if your school has adopted the kind of care language, the culture of care that's becoming a lot more pervasive on the community college campus. I have a kind of critique of that in the seventh chapter that I, I won't bore with you with here, but um, my own school has adopted this, and you know I, I think that it's... Um, if, if you don't mind my honesty, putting lipstick on a pig, right? If we're not, you know, it's not just about caring for students, and I, I'm all about caring for students, but we all have to be cared for, right? And if we are still relying on exploited contingent faculty and staff who we can't give full-time jobs with decent benefits, then that's not a caring community. That's not a caring institution, and we have to take that seriously. Um, and all of the, our needs and our desires should be cared about in an institution for us to be caring. Um, very often now what happens is that there's this use of this virtue script, right? The, the idealistic teacher that goes to the hospital bed of the student who was in a car accident to give them their final exam, and this is, becomes elevated as a culture of care. And yes, it's beautiful, um, but that diminishes what we do as labor. And we do. We, we work. This is our livelihood. Um, my, my own president last year at the State of the College Address said, um, oh, I, want, I, don't want, I do want to get his, um, oh, I forgot what he said. But basically, this isn't a job that we do this because we love to do it or it's our vocation. Or, you know, and, and yeah, of course, many of us really do love what we do. We're, that's a benefit. It's a privilege, right? Um, but that doesn't diminish the fact that we're also we work, <laughs> uh, and, and, and our care can't be done um, in, in, in a way of extrapolating this idealistic version of care. So in closing, I wrote this book because I wanted to bring more attention to what many of my colleagues from around the country were whispering in the hallways and at academic conferences about what they were seeing as wrong 
the wrong direction we were taking the community college. Um, I wanted to illuminate what the students in our classrooms and offices shared with us about their lives and how they thought of themselves as students. And that policies and initiatives designed to merely get them through without this understanding was insufficient at best and destructive at worst. Um, school, the school on hyperspeed, the idea of success is completion, the goal just being about getting it done, this would not be acceptable to our wealthier continuing generation students. So why should we accept it for our students? Um, with the current changes in enrollment patterns, and I'm so delighted to hear that you have an uptick because that's not the case where I am and everyone is very worried, um, creating a student-ready college that offers a more meaningful and, dare I say, joyful experience has even greater urgency. So I was inspired by my years in the classroom um, and observing the very damaging experiences that students I taught and advised were having um, with this push to completion in large part because their full lives, especially outside the classroom, were, were disregarded um, by those who were defining much too narrowly what it means for a student to succeed. Um, these trends in higher education, especially at the community college, are the furthest things from what Bell Hooks calls creating sacred spaces of education as freedom that would allow for their intellectual and spiritual growth. And that's why I went to the classroom because of those words and those objectives. So I wanted to write a book that honors these students, our students, their stories, and the work that so many of us do here so we could redirect the ship of public higher ed and steer it towards a different path. So thank you. And we do have about five minutes, or maybe even a little less, for questions. If anybody has a question, I would ask you to come on down here and speak into the microphone so that folks that are uh, streaming in can, uh, can hear your question. Uh, and while people maybe come on down to ask a question, I will say that we do have federal work-study money and, and students here. And that I think students working at our college is part of how we develop that campus community. When we have students that come to our Flex Day presentations, they are often students who are working at the college. Uh, and as we think about ways of structurally including students, uh, I do think about giving, giving jobs as one. I also have to give a shout out to Tessa, who is always like promoting things like at the perfect time, because we've got a grant for part-time students that I think we should all be aware of. Yeah. Could you come down, Ying? So, so the people online can hear. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, thanks for the talk. Um, and. Now I don't know which way I'm facing. <laughs> I think they're all around. They're all around. <laughs> That's fine. Um, so I read the book. <laughs> and uh, I, I think you mentioned that one of the underlying um, condition for all of our problems is the underfunding of higher ed. And I don't know how much you know about the student-centered funding formula in California. In my opinion, it's very punitive. Um, and you have done a lot of analysis, you know, Bring in New York. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I was holding the microphone without using the microphone. <laughs> I just realized that. Thank you for the reminder. Um, 
Yeah, so with the funding deficit, uh, it's a nationwide pro problem, and it is an underlying problem for most of what we're facing. Um, so I don't know if I have a real question without asking you to look into the crystal ball uh, to see, do you see a trend like nationwide or in different states that that situation might get any better? Because I know for our local situation, our chancellor has talked about going to Sacramento and maybe trying to advocate. Um, even without, you know, without that, we're now in the holding harmless, uh, but we're still facing a, a fiscal crisis in, you know, a couple of years. Yeah, um, I wish I had a crystal ball. I don't. Um, and you know, I've been at my community college now for 30 years, including my part-time time, and we've been fighting the same fight, right? And each year, it's you know a mystery. We're just hearing now from our mayor of our city. So CUNY is funded both from the state university, the state of New York, and also the city of New York. So it's very complicated um, budget. Um, but I, you know, I, on the way, you know, budget allocation is a political decision, right? It, yes, it's economics, but it's a political decision where we choose to put the funding. And I think the 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 most important thing you said is the advocacy from our chancellors, from our college leadership. We need college presidents, chancellors, not to put you on the spot, chancellor, <laughs> but we need those folks fighting alongside us uh, in the in the rooms that we don't get invited to, to remind the folks who are you know, signing off on the budget, how important these institutions are for the, you know, the economic and the political good, the social good of our world, right? If we, you know, we're, we're educators, we believe in the mission um, and it has to be funded. And yes, I'm, I, I, I don't equivocate in this book. Absolutely, we need more because how do you get more full-time faculty and staff is budget. Um, the austerity of you know the, the thin line, it, it's not working for anyone, and at some point it's just not going to work. I, I you know what I, I don't know. Part of that crystal ball is we're also seeing a demographic shift in age of college students, right? It's just this trend now where the traditional college age student is diminishing as a cohort nationally. Will that do anything? I, I don't know. I mean, I could imagine maybe it could open up, but, but or will it close it even further because we're going to have fewer I don't know. Um, but I do think we need a lot of alliances that bring together students and their families who depend on these institutions and faculty. Um, I mean, these are the discussions we should be, hap should be having in our unions, in our faculty governance bodies, in our department meetings. Um, and it kind of goes up along the chain. And I do think, you know, I don't think at CUNY a lot of the college presidents see their role as advocating. And I think that that's to our peril. Thank you. I know that there are probably other questions, but I want to make sure that folks have these 10 minutes to use the bathroom, because at 10.30, we're going to have some morning workshops. And Robin is going to be leading a workshop that will involve more dialogue and invitation from you. And I will also say that the whole reason that we're reading her book is hopefully to pull ourselves together into spaces where we can keep talking about 
these things. And thank you for the good question, Ying. We are inheriting lots of policy and navigating lots of systems, but I hope that we have some voice and feel like there is a sense of power, and I feel like your book is an invitation to not just passively receive, right, and not allow our students to passively receive, but to like activate ourselves and to activate our students. And so with that, thank you and thank you to gratitude for Dr. Robin Iserlis. I will also put back up here the QR code for anybody who needs to sign in to show that you are here uh, virtually. <laughs>